Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Stuart Eldon about the archaeology of Foucault, which is the final book uh, in a series of four books that he's been working on um, over the past, um, I guess, five or six years, or, or has it been longer, actually? It's been almost a decade. Really? Wow. Time, time has really flown. Yeah, so, so I really started working on these as a book in about 2013. So yes, it is almost exactly a decade. I mean, the the, the first one in, in the series because last decade, um, I, I was lucky enough to to host you, um, and you know we, we've come back for the birth of power and and the early Foucault as well. And this last book, I, I suppose, one way of introducing it and introducing the series um, is to start with the time um, that it, it's. Um, covering or, or dealing with it, it sort of charts the kind of early mid-career of Foucault's life uh, he you know sort of finishes his uh, doctoral thesis he ends up becoming a uh, full professor uh, there are lots of different um, kind of fascinating intellectual um, and also I guess kind of you know personal um, elements to, to this period in, in his life but it, it if you were kind of setting out um, a series of books, it would be quite strange to say, I'm going to finish in the middle. So why have you finished it in the middle? And, and um, why is this kind of 1960s into the early 1970s period ended up being the end um, of the work? Well, thank you, Dave, first for, for the interest in this series and for having me back on the show for, for all four of the books. I suppose the the confession thing is I never intended this to be what it became. I began genuinely thinking I was going to write a book on Foucault on the last decade of his career and tracing the history of the History of Sexuality Project. And that that book grew and became two books. So I then wrote a book on the um, period immediately preceding the last decade. So this would be sort of late 60s to early 70s in Foucault's career, which was the Birth of Power book. And then thought, I'm going to take a break from Foucault. I'm going to do some other things. And but quite quickly found myself drawn back to the archives, particularly as the archives were becoming opened up more, new material was becoming accessible to researchers, and a new programme of publication of material was beginning. So this would have been late 2016 that I really began work on the earlier parts of Foucault's career. And the Collège de France courses, so the courses that Foucault taught from 1970 to 1984, were all published in French over about two decades. The last course came out in French in 2015. And then the the team of editors was some pe- new people came on board, some other people stayed on. François Herod is continuing as the lead editor of this to publish a whole series of materials, courses, but also manuscripts from before Foucault was elected to the Collège de France, where he held that chair. And so I knew that with the archive opening up and with this new programme of publication, it became possible to write a book about the earlier parts of Foucault's career on a similar model to the way I'd written the last decade in the Birth of Power books. And I realised that the scope of the material, 
sufficiently large that I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to contain it in a single book. And so that's why I wrote another pair of books, which becomes the early Foucault and the archaeology of Foucault. So yes, if I'd known at the beginning that I was going to write a, a history of Foucault's entire career, I would have done it in a different way. But part of it was I didn't intend that at the beginning, and part of it was the availability of material. When I began work on writing the last decade, the 1960s, which is the focus of this book, the 1960s, we had almost nothing published except what Foucault himself published. Now we have a huge amount of new material either out or coming out that sheds, I think, a lot of new light on this period. I mean, it's interesting you mention the scope of the material because as with the other books, um, what this book gives you, I guess, are those kind of anchor points with um, the sort of fairly famous or or well-known canonical is is probably not not the right word, is it? But, you know, those texts that we associate uh, with being, you know, sort of Foucault's major interventions, but then places them in context with things like lecture series he was working on, you know, uh, material he, he, he was he was working on, edited drafts, stuff like this, as well as things that I, I guess are kind of slightly less well-known uh, in terms of his work. And w- we might start, as the book does, with one of the more kind of well-known um, interventions, which is in the early 1960s, he's working on things like, you know, questions of madness, questions uh, about medicine. Um, and, and really, I suppose there's a sort of um, elements of, of where he's breaking from, from his earlier work, but also quite a lot of continuity in the early 1960s. So what were his, I guess, kind of contributions uh, to thinking about medicine and madness in that period? Right. Thank you. So the, the early Foucault book, the, the one before this in the series chronologically, the early Foucault ends with the history of madness. It's a book in a sense that's a, a how did Foucault come to write the history of madness? And, and the history of madness was Foucault's primary doctoral thesis. The secondary doctoral thesis was the Immanuel Kant's translation, the, the anthropology and, and a long introduction. And Foucault in the history of madness, at least in the, the full version of that, rather than the abridged version, which was the one initially translated into English as madness and civilization. In the full version of the history of madness, Foucault sketches out a number of themes that are significant for much of his later career. So there's stuff about incarceration, there's stuff about biology, there's stuff about um, medicine outside of just mental medicine, you know, mental illness um, medication, but, but also about physical medicine. And so Foucault is picking up on a number of themes in the history of madness throughout later parts of his career. There's also discussion in that book of sexuality as well. And Foucault calls the uh, Birth of the Clinic, his second major book, he calls that book the outtakes from the history of madness. That, that's slightly to underplay what that book is doing and about the material and the, the research that he put into that. But he, I think you can see what he means by that idea, that there are themes in the history of madness that Foucault wants to develop and expand in a, a, a new way in that book, The Birth of the Clinic, which comes out in 1963. And Foucault is asked increasingly as his um, reputation grows to do things like radio uh, programs. And so there's a series of radio lectures that Foucault gives in the 1960s on madness and literature. A couple of these have been published and the others are available as recordings online. There are various conferences where Foucault speaks on connected themes around madness and medicine. So it, it continues to be a theme through the 1960s and that the work on clinical medicine in some ways is sort of behind some of the themes that he develops in The Order of Things, his book in 1966, or Les Mots et Shows in the French original title of that book, which were translators, uh, Words and Things. 
So Foucault is continuing with some of the themes from the history of madness into the 1960s, but he's also connecting them to new interests. He's thinking about them in new ways. And what I try and do in that, that the opening chapter of this book is to try to talk about that work, both the birth of the clinic, but also all these connected pieces, um, to try and sketch out what Foucault does beyond the history of madness around some of these themes. I mean, th- this is territory that um, I suppose even people with a sort of passing interest in Foucault will be really familiar with. But but the sort of middle, early part of the book is really in some ways much more intriguing because it tells the story of Foucault as a kind of literary and artistic critic, um, telling the story of projects unrealised. Um, some projects, you know, that, that we have quite a lot of um, work um, that, that's with us, but some things that kind of never came to fruition. Um, and also, I, I guess, the story of Foucault, um, one of the terms that stood out to me um, in, in the chapter on, on literature was the idea of Foucault being kind of like weary uh, of being a sort of literary scholar. And, I, and I'm fascinated to hear more particularly about literature and art and, and where this uh, fits in. Um, so maybe, maybe I'll ask you two questions. The first is, um, what was his work as a, I, I guess, a kind of a, a literary critic, as a sort of you know reviewer, um, as someone who's trying to write about uh, literature, and then we'll we'll move on to think about the artistic work. Sure. So, so the sixties or the early sixties is really the period where Foucault wrote, writes most explicitly around literature, but you can trace themes in this much further back if you read his 1954 text, the long introduction to Ludwig Binswanger's Dream in Existence, there's a lot of literary themes in that work. And the history of madness is filled with examples from literature. And Foucault's clearly very interested in that range of literature. He tells a story about how when he was a child, his family home had two libraries, his father's, which was clinical medicine, because his father was a surgeon, and that was largely off limits to him. But his mother's library, which was largely French literature, that was open to him. And so in a sense, in the 1960s, Foucault's combining uh, reading from those two different types of libraries that he had exposure to as a child. And the literature work There are various things that Foucault writes. The most extensive is his book on Raymond Roussel, which comes out almost exactly the same date as The Birth of the Clinic. Foucault's working on these two books, and so then um, they come out in 1963 within about a month of each other. Roussel was a relatively unknown uh, um, theorist of literature, perhaps you might say, but also as a, a novelist and a poet. And Foucault discovers his work and becomes very interested in that work. It's quite a personal book by Foucault, but it's the only book that he writes with a, 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 an absolute concentration on literature. But as you say, Foucault writes a number of shorter essays, particularly in the first half of the 1960s, where he's writing for some of the French literary journals. He's reviewing a lot of contemporary French literature, but he's bringing in a number of themes that he's interested in in his wider work around those questions. And he's particularly close to the Talcal journal. Um, Yuli Kristeva would be one of the, the, the key figures that's associated with that journal, Roland Barthes, um, to an extent as well. Um, and Foucault's interested in this, he's connected to this, he's taking part in roundtables where they're discussing the French novel or they're discussing the um, Alain Rogrier's work on the, the Nouvelle Roman, the, the new novel. Foucault's certainly interested in these kinds of questions, but as you say, towards the end of the 60s, he confesses that he's fairly tired of this, he's not really sure where it's going, he's not really sure what else he might have to say about these questions, and then turns 
in the 1970s to the concentration on incarceration with the work that leads up to um, his, uh, sorry to the, to the birth of the to discipline and punish the birth of the prison um, in 1975. So Foucault is certainly interested in literature. There's a lot of work in literature that's published in the 1960s, but there's a lot of work that has become available only relatively recently out of the archives, transcriptions of recordings or, or Foucault's manuscripts from lectures that he gave. A lot more material that we now have on some of the classical French authors, so Flaubert, Balzac, uh, and others, Marquis de Sade. So Foucault's certainly interested in literature in a range of ways, and sometimes connects to themes that he explores in some of his better-known works. Um, but we have an, a, an, a range of new materials that are available to us to fill in details about that engagement, I think. In terms of his work on art, I, I detected a, a similar, if not weariness, but um, I guess a kind of an exhaustion um, of his thought, you know, and a, and a sense of uh, maybe not having much uh, to add or, or much more to add. He, he writes quite a lot about art uh, in the 1960s. And uh, one of the things you've you know you, you've mentioned there about archive material and, and lectures is there's essentially a, a kind of a book on Manet, you know, within um, a lot of detailed preparatory work and, and, and lectures he's given, but it never really comes to fruition. So, so I guess what why... Do we see a, a similar um, kind of interest, but then a waning of interest in, in writing about art as we do with, with literature? That, yeah, I think it's an interesting question, Foucault. I mean, there are some parts of Foucault's writing on the visual arts which are very well known. So the the opening chapter of The Order of Things, which is on the, the painting of by Velázquez, um, that hangs in the Prado in Madrid, of the, uh, the, the artist himself is in the portrait, and you can see... Um, what's really the background is the thing that the artist might be painting reflected in a mirror that you can see in the background. And Foucault's interested in this in terms of questions around representation and so on. And it's kind of like a, an overture to the order of things because it allows him to open up a number of themes that he wants to explore in the book, but to do it through this very detailed analysis of a work of art. And then there are other texts that are relatively well known. So René Magritte, the um, surrealist Belgian painter that Foucault writes a long essay on that becomes a short book um, with some revisions to it. But there are other texts that are also interesting. And some of these, you say, have become available either through a transcription of a recording um, or through um, archive material. Manet is one of those, but there's also a long text on Picasso, which has been published in French, which is on Picasso's series of paintings, um, picking up on themes in Velázquez's painting of Las Meninas and that Picasso then does a series of paintings. And Foucault writes this as on, on a commission by an art gallery that wants to do a, um, a film that shows both the Velázquez painting with Foucault's commentary from The Order of Things and then the Picasso series of paintings with Foucault's commentary on that. For various complicated rights reasons that never gets published and so Foucault takes back the manuscript of this and it sits in the archive until it was published about a decade ago. So there are various texts like that and the Manet one is for many of us it's been known through Didier Erebon's biography or David Macy's biography where they talk about this as the one of the fabled lost works of Foucault. The Foucault did plan to write a book on this. He apparently had quite an extensive manuscript on this that late in life he talked to people about. But the story goes that Foucault destroyed that manuscript um, before he died, and so that that manuscript doesn't exist. 
there are traces of what might have been that manuscript in the archive. There's nothing like a full text, but there are certainly parts, there are sketches of how Foucault might have done this. And there are some um, lecture materials because Foucault gave a lecture on Manet um, and Manet's work in a number of different places. We have a recording of one from Tunisia. We have the manuscripts of ones from some of the other places that he gave. So the Manet material was interesting, and I think there are sufficient traces to be able to say something about that, even if we, we still don't know what Foucault might have done had he not destroyed the manuscript or had he decided to, to develop it along the themes he initially indicates. I mean, you, you mentioned the order of themes. Um, this, I, I suppose, is, is much more in keeping with how we think about uh, Foucault as a you know historian and, and, and philosopher, the history of, of systems of, of thought. And, and when it comes out, it's it's a sort of surprising hit, I, I guess, which is um, quite quite strange for you know people who've uh, read or, or indeed grappled with the book. And, and I'm interested to know, I suppose, what this meant for Foucault in, in terms of, of the reception of, of the book. Um, and, and where it fits in sort of more broadly with, with his work in the 1960s. Right. So it's a, it's an interesting book, and it's quite different from many of Foucault's other major works in that the relation between knowledge and power, as to use his later way of phrasing these things, this book is in, almost entirely about the specialised scientific discourses, the knowledge aspect of this. It's a book that's almost completely detached from what this then meant in terms of politics or or action and so on. So it's a strange book and and slightly an odd one in relation to the rest of Foucault's career. I mean, if you read even the history of madness or the birth of the clinic, they're very much about practices as well as about the scientific knowledge. So The Order of Things is a book that Foucault says, you know, I imagine that this book would be read by a handful of specialists in particular areas. And what's important about the book for Foucault is the way that he's trying to draw parallels between quite different understandings of of specialised knowledge in different fields and how they might connect together. So how can we trace the transition from general grammar to modern linguistics? How can we trace the transition from natural history to modern biology or from the analysis of wealth to economics. And Foucault says these are quite distinct areas, but there might be ways in which they connect in quite interesting ways. And part of the book is to try to explore those. And the book's this surprise bestseller. It becomes this sort of notorious book, although I suspect it's a bit like, you know, Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time. A lot of people <laughs> owned the book, but not that many people read it, or they maybe got through, you know, a chapter or so. And Foucault kind of doesn't quite understand this. I mean, today it is still the best-selling book in the Gallimard series that it was published in. And it's a surprise hit because it's not Foucault's most accessible work. It's not a book that has an immediate kind of connection to debates that are going on at the time in a way that his later books, um, Discipline and Punish or The History of Sexuality, perhaps would have. So it is a bit of a puzzle. But the book's quite provocative, and so there are things in it that people picked up, and Foucault has these various exchanges with people who had criticised aspects of the book, so it annoys traditional Marxists. Sartre feels that he has to say something about the book. There are lots of reviews, lots of kind of discussions of these, the, the book and so on, radio interviews and so on. So it's a bit of a puzzle why this book, of all of Foucault's early works, is the one that has the surprise sort of hit. Um, but it's a book that's... a it's an important and interesting one, even though, as I said, it's a little bit distinct from some of the other aspects of um, Foucault's career, both before and after. The other thing that maybe is worth saying about, about this book and what I tried to do 
in in my book, The Archaeology of Foucault, looking at this, is that we have something that's quite surprising in the archive, in that Foucault gave a lecture course in Brazil in the mid-1960s, where he basically presented this book to an audience. And the lecture materials that we have, which are in the process of being edited for publication, it's an early draft of the book. It's not that Foucault writes a lecture course around the themes of the book, but it's very clearly a early draft of the book is then repurposed as a a lecture course and Foucault puts various things like dates and so on that mean that we can indicate how this was used in a classroom. So it's an interesting book for me because you have this relatively unusual draft of a, of a book. Foucault often destroyed the early drafts of his books, uh, but this one was one that was retained. So I try and say something about that and about how Foucault builds up into the book that, that becomes famous. The early draft doesn't have that opening scene of Velázquez in it. It doesn't have the um, the last two chapters where Foucault connects this to some of the most sort of um, pressing kind of contemporary concerns, this idea of the death of man, that's in, a, in a, a late chapter in the book, but that's something that's not there in the earlier draft in quite the same form. So it was interesting for me in seeing something I've, I've, I've long wanted to, to do with Foucault's work is to see that process of making of these, how these books came about, and that this book had that sort of material available to me. It's good you mentioned Brazil, and, and actually, I'm going to come back to to questions about where he was teaching and, and, and what he was teaching because that's incredibly influential. But as you were talking through the reception and the process of writing, uh, the order of things, I, I was really struck by, I suppose, the contrast with the archaeology of knowledge, which um, you, you deal with towards the, the end of the book. Um, and I wonder if you, if you could sort of tease out that contrast for me. You know, archaeology of of knowledge has a very different reception. Um, it, it's not a hit. It's, it's the kind of short way um, of, of, of summarising that, although, you know, in some ways it might be a much more sort of influential text. And indeed, you know, the, the sort of writing of it um, seems to be, or at least the impression I got was it, it was much more of a kind of a, a struggle for him when he was developing um, that book, both actually as compared with the order of things, but also compared with his, his other uh, books and other processes of writing. Right. That, that, no, that's interesting. That, that opens up some, some interesting questions. Foucault, apparently, I think it was Daniel Defer says to Foucault, so this is Foucault's long-term partner, how much he admired The Order of Things. And Foucault said, yeah, but it's not a book that I ever enjoyed writing. And I think that's true of that book, but it's certainly true of The Archaeology of Knowledge. That The Archaeology of Knowledge is a book that in some of his correspondence with Defer, Foucault talks about how painful the process of writing is and about how the book is just such a mess and he's got all this work to redo and so on. And it goes through a number of different versions. There's a, a whole manuscript which Foucault looks like might be the book after The Order of Things, which Foucault chooses not to publish and, and largely abandons, although some of the themes come up in, in The Order of Things. And that manuscript on philosophical discourse is, is going to be published in May this year, so it's been edited by Daniele Lorenzini and Razzo Herrera, um, and is part of that series of books that I mentioned of, of pre-College de France Foucault material. So the archaeology of knowledge, we have other draft material for it. We can see some of those processes of Foucault working and reworking ideas as he's trying to develop and, and to work out exactly what he is trying to say. The archaeology of knowledge is a, is a peculiar book in that Foucault is writing it in part because he's trying to position himself for a major chair in philosophy in France. Um, it becomes the, 
his election to the College de France um, in 1970, but he's trying to get a position back in in, in Paris um, from a slightly earlier period in the 1960s. And I think he must have thought that writing a kind of major philosophical, methodological treatise would be useful in terms of positioning himself for those kind of um, um, roles. But it's a book that is quite frustrating and it says quite a lot of the things that it's not doing but not always so much about what it is doing or what Foucault thinks that he is doing in his own work it's part of reflection on his previous books but it's also partly a program for what he might go on and do and there's some indications of future projects in that book some of which he he does develop and some of which he doesn't develop Um, but it's a book that's largely devoid of references um, so it makes it quite difficult to see who it is that Foucault is engaging with Um, So it's a peculiar book, and it's another one of those strange books in Foucault's overall trajectory. Uh, But I think some of the material that's now available enables us to situate this much more clearly in terms of the the, the tracking of Foucault's interests and so on. In terms of, I suppose, that uh, preparatory work, you'd mentioned... Um, him trying to get uh, a position in, in, in Paris. Well, one of the uh, things I was struck by during this period is it, it would be wrong to use the kind of modern terms of you know being a sort of precarious uh, ac- academic. But he is you know moving around quite a lot. He's at, you know several different institutions. He, he's in different places. And, and the two things that, that are maybe worth sort of teasing out in that context um, are first off. Um, what is he teaching and, and what's the kind of the role of his of his teaching in, in the 1960s, um, particularly, you know, with reference to these uh, two major books that he, he publishes? Um, and then we'll come on, I, I think, and, and talk about the, the influence of working in Tunisia on, on his politics and his thought. Right. So Foucault gets a position to teach at the University of Clermont-Ferrand um, in sort of central France um, in the early 1960s. So he leaves his post in Tunisia. Sorry, he leaves his post in in Hamburg and uh, takes up this position at Clermont-Ferrand. And like in the early 1950s, Foucault is teaching in a philosophy department, but he's teaching psychology. So psychology at the time was largely taught within philosophy programmes, and Foucault is teaching the psychology classes to that philosophy department in in, um, this regional part of France. Foucault's still living in Paris. Um, He moves back into the apartment that he shared with his brother, Um, in central Paris. He's commuting, staying the minimum amount of time that he can in Clermont-Ferrand, doing his classes and and coming back. We don't have that much by by, uh, record of Foucault's teaching in Clermont-Ferrand. We have a course on sexuality that was published a few years ago in French and has recently been translated into English, where Foucault's teaching sexuality to psychology students. Um, Didier Erebon gave me a set of notes to look at uh, of one of Foucault's students in one of his psychology classes, uh, which was useful in terms of Foucault was just doing really a survey of debates in psychology to those students, possibly not the most exciting thing that he'd ever taught for himself, but it was something that was that was his job at the time. And then in the mid-1960s, Foucault is clearly unhappy in Clermont-Ferrand, but it, position in Paris doesn't come up, and he takes a leave of absence to go and teach in, in Tunisia, where he teaches for a couple of years before returning to France. And then um, he returns initially to the University of Vincennes, which had been set up after the May 68 protests. It's this new experimental university that Foucault comes to realise is a bit of a trap, that all of the 
kind of sedition within the French system has been pushed out into this university in the Vincennes Forest in um, a former military site that was repurposed into a university. And that the idea is that the French state can push all of the problematic lecturers and the, the, the sort of the more hippie students and so on out to this site and then the Sorbonne and the more established French institutions can carry on in the way that they did before. So Foucault realises that there are problems about this kind of institution and his position within it. Um, but he teaches there, he teaches, of course, on Nietzsche, which we'll maybe come to, um, which is the, the subject of the, the last major chapter of this book. But he teaches another course on sexuality there, which has also been published. And so the Vincennes period is an important one in terms of some of the themes of Foucault's work. But it's also one that he he almost can't wait to get out of. Um, And the election to the College de France is the thing that sort of rescues him from this. So what's interesting for him about Tunisia, in part, as an academic position, is that he can teach philosophy. And he can teach philosophy, really, for the first time in his career. He'd always been teaching in philosophy programs or often been teaching in philosophy programs but he's often been teaching something other than the philosophy that he might have been interested in and so the Vincennes position is also to teach in philosophy and then of course the the College de France position is basically a research chair where he can teach what he is interested in the focus of his own research at that time so there's a whole set of institutional questions about where Foucault is located both in terms of where the institution is, but also about the disciplinary position and the teaching that he was doing that I think are important. And there's something I try to talk about in the book to situate some of the ideas and the the arguments in his publications in relation to some of that teaching. And you've also touched on this, you know, there are political questions uh, that flow through this, uh, not just in, in terms of, you know, which uh, bits of the French education system he's in, you know, radical or not, uh, establishment or, or, or not, and, and, you know, the relationship he, he has uh, almost as a kind of political figure, as a campaigner, and, and some of this comes uh, later in his life, and, and obviously he's dealt with in, in your earlier books. But I, I think um, Tunisia, uh, the, the, the book, I think makes quite clear, has a really sort of important influence on him personally, politically, um, as well as, uh, as you've mentioned, you know, intellectually in terms of what uh, he gets to teach and, and the kind of program he's involved with. So, so what was the impact uh, of that period in, in Tunisia? Why, why is this such um, a, a sort of important moment um, in, in his development? So, yeah, so Foucault says that Tunisia was a political awakening for him and that it was the events particularly of March 68 in Tunisia rather than May 68 in Paris that was the real break for him in terms of the earlier positions that he had to to the later, much more radically politically active Foucault, the one that we associate with the early 1970s, the stuff about prison activism and the other campaigns and things that Foucault gets involved in. And Foucault gets caught up in the student protests against the Habib Bourguiba regime. They begin in part around um, the impact of some of the wars between Arab countries and Israel. There's protests about the visit of the of the, um, the United States vice president to Tunisia. But these spark into a wider set of student protests against the regime. And student um, Foucault becomes quite close to some of his students in this period. And there are various stories of him sheltering some of them in his apartment when they were on the run for the police, of hiding a um, typewriter that they were using to, to 
write their um, political tracts and hiding that in his garden. Um, various stories about the kind of the risks that he was taking on behalf of those students and the, sometimes the material support that he was doing, um, giving them money for a deposit for an apartment, paying some of their legal fees. Uh, so Foucault gets quite caught up in these and realises the political radicalism of his students and how they were reading some of the texts that for Foucault he'd often seen as these sort of slightly detached academic texts but they were reading them in a much more active way in terms of these informing the work that they were doing to challenge the regime to to protest against it. Foucault gets introduced by them to Black Panther literature which is important for Foucault in the early 1970s. He starts to reassess the position that he has to some Marxist texts as a result of this engagement. So a lot of his students end up having very long prison sentences or getting uh, very severely beaten by the police on the, the university campus. And Foucault comes back to Paris after this Tunisia period and says, you know, some of what was going on in May 68 was important, but it wasn't the same degree of risk as I was seeing with my students in Tunisia, they were really putting themselves on the line in terms of these protests, and they were suffering from, from a decade or more in prison as a result of some of the activism they were doing. So I think Foucault has a slight scepticism towards the slightly heroic myth of, of 68 um, in, in France after he returns, because he says there was a different context that was important for me, for Foucault, um, but that this was of a different scale to the one that you saw in Paris. That political awakening obviously is really crucial, and you know we we, we can see how it shapes his, his thought as as well as his I guess practice and, and lifestyle as as an individual. The, the way the book comes to a conclusion is with uh, I guess the kind of key influential um, intellectual. Um, I suppose, sort of figure, um, but also, again, you know, as um, as an issue of kind of literary or, or academic practice, which is Nietzsche. So obviously, he's working on Nietzsche, you know, you, you talk in the book about uh, Nietzsche being someone that explains um, his kind of issues with Marxism, his relationship with structuralism, and indeed his you know, distance, um, questions of um, political communism, how he reads Marx, you, you know, Nietzsche is really, really crucial. At the same time as, you know, an intellectual element, there is a, a sort of practical job he has to do um, around Nietzsche, which is being an, an editor. Um, and uh, if I've understood correctly, working with translators, but not directly translating uh, Nietzsche himself. And I'm fascinated by those uh, kind of, you know, dual readings, uh, I suppose, of what's going on. On the one hand, Nietzsche is an intellectual influence at the end of the 60s, but also as, uh, and this is a terrible way to put it, but Nietzsche is a job. Uh, he, he has as well. Right. No, that's an interesting way to think about that. I mean, Nietzsche is somebody who's crucial to, to Foucault almost throughout his career. And that he's, Nietzsche is somebody that I return to in, in all the books on of this series on Foucault. Um, very briefly, Foucault encounters Nietzsche sometime in the early 1950s. Um, really seems to be significant to him. He reads a lot of Nietzsche, he writes some draft material on Nietzsche, but he doesn't publish on Nietzsche for quite a long time, even though I think we can see the importance of Nietzsche in, in what becomes the history of madness. In the 1960s, Foucault does start to publish, but only a very little on Nietzsche. So he gives a, a talk on Nietzsche, Freud and Marx to a conference on Nietzsche that had been organised. One of the organisers was Gilles Deleuze. Um, Foucault 
allows that to appear in the kind of the proceedings of that conference. But it's quite a short text and it's not quite Foucault's real engagement with Nietzsche in detail. And then, at least until recently, the next text that we have of Foucault's publishing on Nietzsche is the uh, Nietzsche genealogy history essay, which comes out in 1971. And that's an important text in terms of the reading of Nietzsche, but also in terms of how much of this is what Foucault is trying to do in his own work? How much is this the, the model of how Foucault wants to do a historical examination, which he starts to call genealogy from around this time? So those were the, the published traces, really, the, the Nietzsche-Freud marks and the Nietzsche genealogy history, until relatively recently. We now have some of Foucault's lecture material on Nietzsche. Uh, we have a Brazil lecture from 1973 on Nietzsche. We have a... Um, text from Montreal in 1971 that was published in an appendix to the Lectures on the World to Know course. But we also have some material in the archives that helps to fill in some detail of this. And the the most substantial is a whole course that Foucault gives on Nietzsche at the University of Vincennes that I mentioned, the Experimental University. And there is a manuscript for this course, but it's in a bit of a mess in the archive. It's The pages are not numbered, it's not in the right sequence, it's sort of jumbled up and it's difficult to work out what order Foucault might have presented the material. Now, somebody who contacted me and wished to remain anonymous but said I was one of Foucault's students at Vincennes and I took notes and I can share with you my typed up notes of what Foucault said in those courses and that was really valuable to me. Now, I would always want to be slightly wary about using student notes to reconstruct what the the lecturer had actually said, but it was really helpful because they also had access to the manuscript in terms of working out the chronology, what in order, which order Foucault had delivered this material. And so I didn't want to rely on the lecture manuscript, on the, the student's notes, except to help me to make sense of Foucault's notes. And using that, I was able, I think, to reconstruct the way that Foucault had taught that course at Vincennes. And I spent quite a lot of time talking about this course, which is really a prelude to what Foucault then writes up in the much shorter piece, the Nietzsche Genealogy History Essay. So Foucault's teaching on Nietzsche is important. I mean, there's traces in other places where Foucault lectured on Nietzsche. So a 1950s course on on philosophical anthropology where Nietzsche is mentioned in the manuscripts and that's now been published. There are reports that Foucault taught about Nietzsche in Tunisia, of which we have um, more limited traces. But this Vincennes course is very much the the most detailed analysis of this. And then there are some other lectures in the Americas, the one I said in Brazil, but also in Canada and the US in the early 1970s. And all of the archive material on Foucault's engagement with Nietzsche is due to be published. Um, Bernard Arcor, who's edited a couple of other volumes of Foucault's work, is going to be editing the Nietzsche volume in that new series. So there's a lot of new material to sort of fill in the detail about how we understand that Foucault was reading Nietzsche. You mentioned the the role that Foucault has in the French edition of the of Nietzsche's uh, collected writings. So this was two Italian scholars were realising that there was a real problem with the German edition of Nietzsche's text. This is in the 1960s. And that they get access to the Weimar archive where Nietzsche's papers are. And they say that before we can do an Italian translation, which is what they initially commissioned to do, we need to do a proper critical German edition that then can be translated into Italian, French and still ongoing, is into English with uh, Stanford University Press. Foucault is brought on as one of the advisors or editors is a slightly generous 
term in terms of the role he has in the French edition of that um, German critical edition that was in process from the 1960s. So Foucault and Gilles Deleuze are initially the two French language editors for this. But as you said, Foucault is not doing the translation himself. Pierre Klosowski does the first volume and Foucault and Deleuze write a short introduction to that volume. But Foucault is also involved in some of the sort of publicity. He gives some interviews around this time, he and Deleuze, uh, to newspapers or to um, radio shows around this. And they talk about how they're reading Nietzsche, how it makes possible this new critical edition, makes possible new readings of Nietzsche to break from some of the problematic ways in which Nietzsche had been edited in the past. And it generates and makes possible these different types of readings, um, of which Deleuze and, and Foucault are two of the French examples around this. Just one other thing maybe on that question, the the editing issue of Nietzsche, I think, is an interesting one in terms of what Foucault's role is with that. And one of the things I try and do, I think it's particularly in this book, The Archaeology of Foucault, is to talk about Foucault's role as an editor. So his involvement in the Georges Bataille complete works, his um, role as one of the editors of the Critique Journal, taking over after Bataille died, um, Foucault's involvement in that and some of the editorial work that goes on there. So about how Foucault and others were involved in making possible these different intellectual interventions of getting Bataille's works produced in this substantial, what becomes 12-volume edition, um, the editorial work of how a journal is put together, at least how a journal was put together in the 1960s, and the Nietzsche part would be another aspect of that, of, of that sort of editorial work, or as you say, the job alongside the the more intellectual interests that he had in terms of his own writing or his own teaching. Mentioning Deleuze, um, there's also various other um, key intellectual relationships uh, quite early on. Uh, You discuss Derrida, Althusser, um, and and I guess that kind of broader um, intellectual uh, scene that, you know, blooms at at this point in in France. And and that leads me, I I guess, to a a sort of concluding question, which, which... you know, this book and, and, and the four of them together, I think, are a genuinely remarkable achievement. And, and it strikes me, I suppose, where, where do you go next after you've done this? Um, and I'm interested to know, you know, sort of what a future project might be in terms of is it working on, you know, other uh, thinkers uh, related to or, or in kind of Foucault's orbit? Is it a matter of having settled accounts with Foucault, doing something completely different? Um, where next after such uh, a kind of a major project? Well, thank you. I'm, gl- I'm glad you think that the four books work um, and that, I mean, having read and discussed all of the books with me, um, we did that in the order that the books were written. Um, but I now hope that people, if they're interested, can read the books in the order in which the events they talk about happened. Um, so there's a either the order I wrote the books or, I, or the order that the books are are talking about and, and hopefully it, it works in both ways to read those books. Yes, yeah, so you mentioned Althusser. Um, Jack Derrida is somebody else who I also talk about Foucault's relation to him. And with those thinkers and with others, the Foucault archives were important, but also I had to go to the archives of some of these thinkers. So there's a um, substantial archive of Althusser's papers at EMEC, which is a, a residential archive in Normandy. And they also have uh, many of, of Derrida's papers as does um, the University of Irvine in California. And using the archives of people that were connected to Foucault opened up some possibilities for future projects of my own. So I I did write a book on Georges Conguerme as part of the 
sort of the period in which I was working on these Foucault books because I became interested in what Congem's work was doing and the, the opening up of his archive uh, allowed me access to that kind of material. And that's really what led me to what has become the, the next big project was uh, Foucault's friend and, and mentor, Georges de Mazil, the comparative mythologist and um, philologist or literary scholar. And de Mazil's archive was really interesting to me. I became interested in the impact that both he and Emile Benveniste had on generations of French thinkers around an idea of Indo-European thought, around uh, comparative mythology, about whether it's possible to reconstruct a proto-Indo-European language, the one that is the common ancestor of languages as distinct as Sanskrit, as Greek, as Latin, or whether it's possible to say something about the people that spoke those languages, what they believed, what they thought, the gods they worshipped, and so on. And so Benveniste and Dumazil are the two main figures that I want to concentrate on in the, the new project, which is going to be a an intellectual history of Indo-European thought in 20th century France. It's funded by a Leverhulme Major Research Fellowship, which gives me the time away from teaching to, to really dig into this and really to do the work. There's huge archives of, of Dumazil, slightly lesser of Benveniste, and a whole range of associated figures. And so I'm doing early work in that, in terms of digging into that material to see what I can say and to try to reconstruct this and maybe a different way to think about the debates in French theory in the 20th century um, from some of the ways that I've done it before or some of the ways that other people have done it before. I think there's a story that's worth telling, even if I don't yet know all of the details of what it is. And, and a book? Or I hope so. More than one book? I, I hope, I, well, I hope it's not more than one book. At the, I'm, <laughs> I hope at the moment. I'm hoping maybe one quite substantial book, but not more. Um I've written some papers on Foucault and Dumazil and the kind of the intellectual relation between the way that Foucault picks up on some of Dumazil's ideas and puts them to work in some of his own analyses. And those papers are, are a sort of a bridge between the Foucault work and this new project. So there'll, there'll certainly be some associated papers. I've recently edited a critical edition of Dumazil's book, Mitra Varuna, an essay on two Indo-European uh, representations of sovereignty, uh, which should be out within a few months. And that was also valuable to me in terms of understanding how de Mazil worked, the, the, the construction of a book uh, for him. So there'll be some related publications, but yes, the hope is to write one probably quite big book on the history of, of this idea, this Indo-European thought in France. <laughs>